We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country, give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country, give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in. It's Good News Monday. DACA is here to stay. It's amazing. Such great news because living in a legal limbo is painful. I've been there. I do not recommend it to anyone. And I'm so happy for all of my friends and listeners and everyone out there who can now finally breathe out. And you know what? I'm also happy for America. I'm happy that checks and balances have worked this time because it's been so frustrating and exhausting to live with not in my name mantra for the last few years. And This time, we don't have to be ashamed of our country. It feels good. What can I say? God bless America. <laughs> My guest this week is Sarah Stanizai. She is a therapist who doesn't have a therapist vibe, which is a good thing. <laughs> She has, uh, you know, a rock and roll vibe. Do people even say rock and roll vibe? I mean... Rock and roll is ancient history. It's like it's like Mozart at this point. <laughs> But you know what I mean. Sarah is a trained, licensed, and experienced therapist, and she just she's just cool as hell. I'm really excited for you to meet her. She is the founder of Prospect Therapy, which is a psychotherapy practice. She focuses on overachievers and black sheep and on the queer community. We talk about how being a daughter of Afghani refugees and growing up in post-9-11 America equipped her for her work in a unique way. So here's our chat. My family is from Afghanistan, and I was born in Los Angeles. And so just introduce yourself. Like, what do you what are you these days? Sure. I'm many things. Uh, so my name is Sarah Stanazai. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm the owner of Prospect Therapy. We are a queer and trans affirming therapy practice based out of Long Beach with a special focus on mental health for first generation Americans, immigrants and children of immigrants and other bicultural communities. Cool. I know. I'm used to saying that a lot. So I can there sense you have that <laughs> you've you've attended a lot of events, yeah. and uh, your your 15 second elevator pitch of yourself is on point. Yes, I had to narrow it down. So there you have it. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the, some of the specific things in your family and in your personal experience as a first generation uh, that made you turn to this career? Yeah, um, there's this joke among therapists, especially therapists in private practice about your ideal client and the person that you love working with is, you know, an, a younger version of yourself. And so, you know, we're really working through our own stuff, but that's not true. We No? I mean, you want to help people with things that you have already overcome. You don't want to help people with things that you were in the midst of dealing with. Right. Nobody. Yeah. I'm just going to stop there. But um, <laughs> well, yeah, you don't want to go to a couple's therapist who is in the middle of the divorce. That's kind of. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Not it's that it, it is a disqualifier, but uh, probably you the know, person would be a bit extra sensitive to some things and we'll have a hard time. Yeah, we'll give it a year after your <laughs> divorce is fine. In the middle of it, maybe not. Yeah. Um, but I say that because. My work and the practice that I've built is is really based a lot on my own personal experience as a queer person and as a child of immigrants. I think when I figured out, you know, identity formation is a really long journey and so is professional identity development when you are a therapist and you're learning how to help people and how to 
I think you go to therapy school to learn how to actually like hold back <laughs> hmm. because, because everybody comes to therapy school because we really want to help people and everybody comes to us for advice and we're really good listeners. And when you learn to be a therapist, you learn how to kind of turn that on and off. Mm. Otherwise, it's just always on. So it's self-defense. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that whole that whole like thing about you can't help others if you don't help yourself. Like I need to be able to turn it on and off. Otherwise, I'm just going to be giving really bad advice to people all the time. And um, exhaust yourself. Oh my gosh, I know. Uh, I'm always fascinated with therapists because to me it seems like, and I've been in therapy, and every time I'm loading such huge loads of stuff and emotion on the person and I'm like how are you doing this like how do you go home after yeah. after five of these like what is left of you that's yeah I think people are very um intrigued by their therapist and they want to know a lot about us but they actually don't want to know um I want to know everything about my own personal therapist but I appreciate that she doesn't tell me because yeah especially for people who are, you know, very empathic or like me, a recovering people pleaser, the less, the less information I have about the person trying to help me, then I don't know how to people please them. So I appreciate that she doesn't tell me because if I found out her favorite freaking candles, then I'd be showing up with a candle every week, you know? And so she takes that, she takes that responsibility off of me. And I do the same with my clients. I'm actually quite open with my clients. Um, and I use myself you know, our relationship is, is what is healing. So I'm definitely not the blank slate type of therapist. Like all my business is out there, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but I do it strategically and there's a limit to it. And in session, it's always about the client. And if I can share something that I've been through or something that relates to what they're going through, sometimes they're like, oh, this really helps me. It, knows, it lets me know I'm not alone. And that well-adjusted, put-together people also struggle with this. So that actually makes me feel better rather than what you don't want is people saying like, oh no, this person can't help me because they're struggling with this themselves. Like, yeah. just, well, let's just change the subject. So there's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole art to self-disclosure and, and being yourself. Huh. That's not the question that you asked me. No, that's okay. I think it, it, it's funny in a funny way, it kind of mirrors um, the, the struggle and the predicament of immigrants and first generation because you are trying to balance what you really are with the expectation of the environment and trying to do your best in the environment not necessarily fit in but sometimes it is trying to fit in or and finding the balance is it trying to fit yeah. in or or trying to stand out or oh my god <laughs> what are you doing that like that whole thing with identity and what you were saying earlier really resonated with me, like the identity building. I think maybe maybe we can, you know, sit on this for a minute and, and talk a little bit more about this because identity building and identity identifying yeah. <laughs> and um, and all of it mixed with current environment and identity manipulations yeah. And identity politics mm -hmm. is a very complicated um, field uh, for an individual to navigate. And I know that you've you've talked about this and, and uh, I would love to hear you speak about. Yeah, this. I mean, what we're really doing is I want to belong. I want to belong and I want to feel like people understand me. I want to understand others. What we're doing when we when our identity develops is we're trying to figure out what do people want from me so that I can stay part of the group. Would it be okay for me to ask you, and I know that it is kind of like a tricky field in terms of your um, work with your clients, like what was your experience with that? Oh, yeah. I'm very open about my experience. And I think... Um, doing that work makes me better equipped to do this work with other people because I intuitively understand what it's like to, to have that imposter syndrome and to feel like you're not being seen for who you actually are. And then you start to buy into what people tell you that you should be. And not just from, you know, white mainstream Americans, but also just from our own cultures and our own families. And how does that thing form in a person? So my experience 
um, is pretty specific. I, like I said, I was born in Los Angeles. Uh, my sister and I were born here and my family were immigrants or refugees really from Afghanistan. Uh, English wasn't my first language. Pashto was my first language, uh-huh. um, but I learned English pretty quickly. Um, and I looked definitely, I looked more brown and more ethnic. And um, I think a lot of people thought I was Latinx when I was growing mm-hmm. up. Um, did your family run from the war? They did. Yeah. Both my parents. Yeah. Um, thanks, Russia. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> You're like, I which know. war was that? It's cool. We're cool now. <laughs> well, we're but, all cool. We're, we're all kind of cool here. That's another funny thing. Yes. Yeah. There's a very specific American immigrant story as opposed to any other country there is. Um, but yeah, so I grew up knowing that I was very, you know, quote unquote ethnic. And I knew that my food was weird and my language was weird. And I knew people didn't know what to make of me or they just assumed that I spoke Spanish. Um, and I just really, really, really wanted to be a white girl. I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted, I didn't want to stand out for things that were because I was in, that were seemed to be negative things, even though I grew up in LA and there's like a huge Latinx population here, but whatever. Did it make you reject um, your yes. culture? I absolutely like distanced myself from my culture. So I grew up... Um, I was raised Muslim. I learned all the prayers. My dad wanted me to go to masjid or go to the mosque with him. Um, And I think every young kid is like, oh my gosh, I don't want to (laughs) go. I want to (laughs) sleep. So I I distanced myself in that way from it. But as I got into junior high, um, people stopped even knowing, you know, what I was. And I just tried to pass as white. And I Um, did everything I could to fit in with my friends. Um, And that worked for me for a while, except then I have, I'm that generation when I was in high school when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And suddenly everybody knew what Afghanistan was. Everybody knew what Islam was or what they thought it was actually. But people had never heard of Afghanistan growing up. So it was easy for people to just forget about it or not commit it to memory or just, they would just assume about where my family was from. Um, but then Afghanistan became like a very common household word and it became a very, very negative thing. And Islam became a very negative thing. Um, and that's when I actively started just distancing myself from it. And I, I thought I had worked so hard to fit in and I had my friends and I didn't want people to know this about me. Wow. Um, and I was not a very confident person. So, you know, my friends were everything to me and um, it was hard to live that and it was hard now to even watch that looking back to see that um that I felt so fragmented so for a long time I just went through life saying that I'm white you know what I used to tell people I would say if you can guess then I'll tell you hmm. and nobody yeah, could do that too guess. but yeah. I didn't know if it was a I do it more as like a game I don't know I, is that a rejection mechanism because I have kind of a similar uh I guess look in a way yeah uh um you know semitic uh i'm of jewish descent uh but i can be whatever italian armenian uh latina i can be anything um and so yeah people rarely guess russian looking at me um unless they have like a a good friend russian and they can somehow detect my accent um (laughs) Yeah, I think I don't I don't think that's like an explicit rejection, but I do think there's a reason why we don't we don't just come out and say it. That's the tricky part about identity. Like you want it, but you don't want to identify with it. Like why do we need it? Why do we need identity? Oh my god, girl, don't even get me started. No, I want to get it started. <laughs> well, that's the thing. We need it to connect us to people and to feel like we belong. However, it it works against us when the only thing that I am, or when that word that I use suddenly only means one thing, Afghan-American, Muslim, bisexual, white-passing woman. Like, that's a very specific identity with a very (laughs) specific set of experiences, but people hear any one of those words and they think they know you, right? Mm. Um, And so identity can help us because it can broaden our world and help us Um, belong to groups and when you meet somebody who has your experience you know that feeling when you're like yes you get it 
You know the plates of fruit that my family brought over. You know <laughs> the friggin' rugs that are in my house right now. Like those little things um, seem small, but it's a way to communicate and connect you. But then when that's the only thing that defines you and you can't be anything else, you know, that's when it works against us and it, it keeps us sort of trapped. It's the same thing with freaking gender and sexuality and everything else. But Right. And so how do we navigate the balance? Because we can't do anything about people and how they perceive us. And that's one of the reasons I hesitate saying I'm Russian, because people have assumptions of what Russian girls are. <laughs> and Really um, awesome and smart and really friendly. Yeah, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, is that what you think? I mean, I would love I'm to. just describing you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Yay. Well, but yeah, I mean, there are all those weird assumptions about Russian girls, and I'm not going to even say them because yeah, I don't want to, you know. Yeah, we don't want to perpetuate them. No. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so you can't change how society thinks of your ethnicity, background, sexuality, color, how do you ground yourself? What, what, do, what do you do with it to be okay with all of them? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I think the problem happens a lot is everybody knows, like I'm the one Afghan that most people know, but there are so many of us around, you know, and you're probably the one or two like Russian immigrant person that people know and they say, oh, okay. So the next person they meet, like you, they'll say, they'll just assume that that person is very similar to you. Mm -hmm. But, but I say this a lot about like bisexual people where they're like, oh, I don't know anybody who's bisexual. And I'm like, actually, you probably do. And we're all different. And the more people, you know, who have that identity, the more you'll realize that, okay, some of the stereotypes might be true, but we are very diverse and there are so many different experiences so that people are less likely to say, oh, I know a Muslim person. Now I'm going to make all these assumptions. Now they'll say, oh, I know a lot of Muslim people and they're all kind of different. Like, tell me. And then they'll just get to know the person themselves. Does that make sense? Isn't that mm. sound so nice if that could really happen? That's That was kind of exactly my question is like, that's the hope. And I think in a way, w we the multi-hyphenated people who who have all those ident identities to navigate and balance, we are much more sensitive and um, curious about other people's right. other parts. Yes. And because we kind of know how multi-layered we are, so we, we assume that about right. other people. Curiosity and openness. Yeah. So we think, okay, I see this side of this person. I'm sure there's more to that. Right. And th there's there always is. But. Well, I think you said, like, how do we stay grounded in our own identity when we are so misrepresented or misunderstood? And I think that's why being visible and finding people like you is so important, because not only is it important for everyone else to, like, know that we're all out here and we're all kind of different, but also for us to know. I guess the point is to get visible so that my community can find me so that I'm moving through the world in community and in circles where I feel like I do belong so that in the times when I don't, I'm like, that's okay. I have my group here. I know that I, when I go home, I'm understood. I know that when I'm with my friends. So it reinforces us against those times when <laughs> people ask stupid questions or they make assumptions about me. So um, community is really, really important especially from being from like a very collectivist culture where everybody's in everybody's business all the time. <laughs> like that can work against you and it's super annoying sometimes, but it also is a strength of ours and something we do really well. And imagine if all those people who were in my business were actually on my side, that would fortify me a lot rather than making me feel so alone. But in order to do that, you have to find your people. And so that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years. Yeah. And it's, a, it's I, that is also, I mean, as much as balancing your inner identity and those are i guess like connected parts of the same process finding your identity and finding your people yeah right right and um this whole process was kind of one of the reasons i started this podcast and that's why it's called we the aliens it's yeah um looking for a way to belong um 
but uh, a lot of times there is this uh, looking for a balance between your old culture and the new culture. Yeah. And you don't even know where you really belong. And that was my biggest fear when I, I just remember that moment. I, I never wanted to be an immigrant to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then life happened and things happened and choices were made. And then all of a sudden I received my green card that says permanent resident alien. And that was it. That hit me like a ton of bricks because I was like, okay, so now I'm perpetually an alien. Yeah. I will never, at that point I knew very, I knew for sure that I will never become as American as like somebody who was born here. Like it would be impossible for somebody who came here after college. Um, And then at that point, I already knew that I would have a hard time going back. Like there's no going back. Mm -hmm. It's re-immigrating if you go back 10 years later, five years later. So like being in the middle there um, and trying to find who you are and which community do you belong is like a whole process. It's a whole journey. Yeah, I think, and I think um, like there are definitely parts of that journey. Like no one wants to come here and then only affiliate with their own community and their own family. Well, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in and interview one second. I'm sorry. Um, but there are those there are those people who do do that. Like for Russians, for example, it's the famous Brighton Beach where, you know, people just, you know, they froze in the Soviet 1980s uh, or 90s at this point, maybe. Uh, and they speak Russian. They read Russian newspaper, local newspaper. They watch Russian TV. They only have Russian friends. Uh, and even the kids who are who grow up there speak in English with sort of Russian flair of an accent. Yeah. Um, and then there's the opposite. And I'm sure it's similar yeah. with all other cultures, like where families come here, they cut off the, all the communication with the culture and they say, we're American now. And they don't even teach their children Russian. Or I heard the same thing about Spanish. Um, and yeah. there's this, completely rejection rejection um so yeah because people feel like we have to choose a side and Mm -hmm. what i'm saying is yeah most people if that is part of their journey like they do one or the other and they kind of stay there for a bit but then they slowly start branching out hopefully and then you realize that i'm not half of two things i'm actually two whole things i am very american and i'm very much of my own culture but that tension and that inner conflict that we have because when we're home we're one thing and then when we go out to school or to work we're another thing and the things that I do to be successful at home do not work out in the real world and people at work and school think I'm weird or they're you know it doesn't compute for them and then similarly the things I do to be successful out in the world when I take that stuff home you know your parents are like so like how much does it pay what do I care you know like look at this beautiful painting I just got or look I'm gonna go to art school and the parents are like yeah so it just doesn't even register and so that can cause that inner conflict where we're like second guessing ourselves and we're like wait how do I do this because I'm actually playing two different sets of rules and when we realize that we can play both of those and they don't have to be separate and oh okay I know my parents speak this language so I'm going to speak this here with them literally their language but also like their expectations and how I uh, relate to them mm-hmm. I can flow in and out of that and I'm not trapped in it and I'm also not completely rejecting it same way when I go to you know my extremely white workplace I'm going to use the language that they use and I'm gonna go out to lunch with everybody else so I can play those uh, by those rules but it doesn't negate who I am all the rest of the time and I think when you can embrace all of that and feel more integrated rather than fragmented, that's what helps people feel more confident. Oh my God, were you ready for all that? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's great. I love it. The only tricky part with that, I think, is where a person, when they start to try to play different 
things with d different, as you said, like different rules and trying to be a different person with, and you are always a different person, but if you're, I don't know, if you focus on that, like, wouldn't you start feeling false or fake? Right. I think what I mean is uh, when you can navigate all of those settings and still be true to who you are, and that's what I help people with is like, I'm going to be myself no matter where I am, but How? I have... <laughs> if you if you are it's like being bilingual, you know? Hmm. It's like I'm That's saying an interesting the same, analogy. I'm saying the same thing, but I'm using different words for it. Success in my family, in my parents' home means one thing. Success in my job or in my marriage or my relationships means another thing. I'm still gonna be successful. I'm gonna speak a different language to get there. Rather than saying, Well, I only speak this one language and if I can't do that, then that's not for me. And that's what happens to people when they say Oh, well, I don't want to be, I want to be very American and I want to fit in. So I'm going to reject this other language. I don't, I don't want to play by those rules. And people feel very fragmented. Um, and when you can embody all of that together, that's when you say, oh, sometimes I do this and sometimes I do that, but I'm always going to be who I am. Does that make sense? Yeah. I like that language analogy. I think, uh, I think a lot of bilingual people will internalize that um or at least i can um because i'm always confused about that thing um and i don't mean to turn it into a a, a public <laughs> therapy session <Yeah. laughs> um but yeah this whole identity um and belonging and then on top of it there's uh loss and that is something that i'm particularly interested in because I don't think it's often spoken about in in the context of um, of immigration. People say, "Well, there's sacrifice. You sacrifice, you know, um, your whatever." There's the, the word sacrifice is there, but mm -hmm. the word loss and the word grief yeah. are not right. Um, and I think it's missing the process is not full <laughs> because if you yeah you sacrifice it's it's what the sacrifice is one moment when you've given up and you left and then but then the loss is with you yeah. <laughs> and grief stays with you well the difference between those two also is that sacrifice is something that you're choosing and people say well it's your fault or not your fault but it's your responsibility like well then you shouldn't have come here <laughs> like the sacrifice that i made I chose to make that. Yeah. But, but grief and loss is something that you don't have control over. Well, I think immigration has a combination of those because, yeah, we think that we give up one thing, but a few years in, you realize that you gave up way, 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 way more than you thought you were sacrificing. Yeah. Um, and then... And grief, especially because you're grieving things that you had, but you're also grieving things that you didn't even get the chance to have. And it's a weird experience to grieve things that you like into the future, grieve things that you didn't even have. Mm -hmm. And so, and so do, do you encounter people in your practice who come with, with unrealized grief? Yeah. And I think um, the words that people use to describe that, they don't recognize it as grief or like anticipatory grief. Like I know I never got to do this. Mm -hmm. but this never even happened. So how can I grieve it? Yeah. Um, and what people describe it as instead is it kind of manifests as like second guessing themselves or low self-esteem, like, oh, I should have been able to do this and I'm not. So I'm constantly failing. And it doesn't take into account the fact that, you know, there's this whole shift in your life and there was this whole loss that you didn't even get to the years that if you would have spent these years in your own country, they would have been different and you didn't. So yeah. there's no way, like you can't blame yourself for that, but it does manifest in a way of like feeling inadequate or feeling kind of like it's like, they're never going to catch up. Well, yeah. Like I definitely, and again, it's like turning into this public uh, therapy session. I feel like I'm 10 years behind kind of, is that like a common thing? Um, yeah. I mean, I think 10 years is a long time. <laughs> but I think it is a common idea of like look at, now I'm like but how does that make you feel? <laughs> um but I, I do like think like a weirdo. Like a black sheep. Yeah, we're uh, all weirdos. We're weirdos together. Yay. Um I don't even remember what I was gonna say now. 
Well, I asked you if it's a common thing feeling that, I mean, I feel that I have spent a lot of time embracing a new culture and learning about it and learning, understand. And it's also a much bigger business. It's a much bigger country to mm -hmm. grasp and to kind of navigate. And we kind of take it for granted that we have all the connections and we have the environment in our home countries and we have the network and we don't realize that none of that will exist in mm -hmm. the new country. Mm -hmm. um, or we do, but we really underestimate how much it matters. And it takes a very long time to catch up with all of those things. And then you're like, woof, I just completed a, you know, PhD in America. Uh, in America. <laughs> yeah, I think it manifests as a lot of compensation. Like I have to overcompensate for this. I'm making up for lost time. I'm also paying back the sacrifice of my family. I'm making up for all the things that I left behind. So I'm constantly sort of catching up in this race. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Overworking makes... like crazy. Yes. Over networking, over, over, over doing everything. Yes, because I do feel like I'm starting behind everyone else. And I'm not stopping to look around like how far I've come and how happy I am where I am. It's like that doesn't matter. I need to I need to hurry up and catch up, but it's this impossible task to do. So it's just a constant feeling of overcompensating, not being good enough. What should the person do when they find themselves in that uh, trap of over overcompensating? Yeah, I think it's time for a reality check and for focusing on uh, kind of like what I said, like how far I've come and what do I have around me now and recalibrating what my goals and expectations are and having compassion for myself and, you know, all that Brene Brown shit about... <laughs> <laughs> You just like packaged it into it. It's basically that. I've literally, for the record, I've never read a Brene Brown book, but people keep recommending it to me. But really it's about, um, I think once you become aware of what's going on for you and you can conceptualize that, oh, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I feel like I'm falling behind at work and my boss doesn't like me and I'm not doing a good job. But that's actually not the case. I'm actually probably fine at work. I realize that that feeling is displaced that feeling is something that I'm carrying with me because of my experience as an immigrant or a child of immigrants. It's not really about my job. Does that make oh, sense? Oh, so interesting. Yes, totally. And like the, this example that you brought up actually brings up a friend who, who to totally all the time is obsessing over having a good relationship at work. Yeah. Like to the point of like calling me and asking me like, how do we, how do I do this? How do I do that? Like, and I'm like, it's okay. Like, it's not a big, it really isn't a big deal. They're not going to not like you because you not answer this email mm -hmm. that they sent you at 10 o'clock at night immediately. Mm -hmm. You can answer it in the morning. It's fine to take a minute and to like go to bed <laughs> on time. <laughs> like, it's not going to make people like you more, I promise. But it's no. that idea that they're compensating for something else. And this is a thing that people do not often connect. Uh, my clients, even myself, I worked through all my trauma and all my anxiety and all my depression and all my relationship stuff. I mean, I am a therapist and I have been in therapy. I'm still in therapy. I think it's very valuable. Um, and it wasn't until I... And, and this part of my identity as a child of immigrants was kind of like on the back burner. And I said, what do you mean? Like, I'm fine. Like, I don't need to keep talking about this. And it wasn't until I addressed that, that all the other things really started clicking into place. And there was no way you could have told me that me talking about Afghanistan and my experience um, as a child of immigrants would ever impact how my relationships were or how I was healing from my trauma and I'm telling you, I totally did. And I was like, whoa, I'm super pissed that this was the thing that was like holding me back. Like it was something that I didn't even connect the dots with. And then once I did, uh, that's when everything really kind of became aligned for me. And I, I really found so much more, um, frankly, like self-confidence and resilience and healing. Um, and it was something that was basically right under my nose, but I kind of didn't think it was important, which is why I love 
which I think is what drew me to this work and why I love doing it now. Right. So it was just to, I, I kind of, uh, I think I'm not sure if I understood. You mean you being immigrant, uh, sorry, uh, you being a first generation, mm -hmm. that part of the puzzle you were kind of um, yeah. not noticing. Mm -hmm. Huh. Because the problem that I was having in all these other areas of my life was I wasn't being, I didn't feel validated. I wasn't being seen for who I was. I felt that I was misunderstood in every setting that I went to. And I said, what the hell is this? Like, I can't be any more assertive and like loud and, and like clear about who I am. And yet I still feel this second guessing and this like trying to compensate. And I realized hmm. I connected it to, oh my gosh, like even since I was a young kid, people were like, what are you? And, and had expectations of me and made assumptions and things. And it wasn't until I embraced that part of my identity when I started saying, yeah, my family's from Afghanistan. I was born in Los Angeles. You know, I say that very mm -hmm. easily now. And I did not say that for a very long time. Um, hmm. Just the same way I used to not say I'm bisexual or I'm a trauma survivor or any of the other things that I can say about myself now. And I was, <laughs> it was like those things that are so obvious. Once you know them, they're really obvious. But before that, you're like, I'm never going to figure this out. I was like, whoa, this is connected. Shut the hell up. But it totally was hmm. for me. And I find that that's connected for a lot of people too. And so just, obviously it goes way deeper than, than just saying, but the saying of mm -hmm. what you are and, and connecting with it, I guess, is part of it, right? Yeah, you have to do a lot of work before you can say it. You know, you and I had that experience before where we would say things like, you probably never heard of it. Oh, uh, if you can guess, I will tell you. Um, yeah. I don't bring this. This is not how I introduce myself. You know, yeah. it's not like I'm going to be ashamed or hide it, but I'm definitely not going to volunteer it. And that's how a lot of people with their queer identity are or people who are trauma survivors or people with any kind of experience like that. Um, like it's something that you may not necessarily hide or you might but you're certainly not like open and upfront about it because there is some sort of internalized messaging about what does that say about me mm -hmm. that the world has told me and mm -hmm. so I was doing all this work to get quote-unquote okay with those parts of myself and this one was sitting here <laughs> in the front row like we're just not going to talk about this um, huh. and as I I mean I would have never guessed that that's what it was but that was like the missing piece. And I find that that is true for a lot of the people that I work with too. Right. I know you talk a lot about the imposter syndrome. I mean, I think everybody kind of heard what this thing and, yeah. and, but I, I'm not sure people realize that uh, being an immigrant or being a first generation puts you kind of in the risk category for this. Yeah. And can we, can we talk about like what it is and why? Yeah. So that's a phrase that has really become popular recently. Um, and it refers to, first of all, it's not like an official diagnosis, like anxiety or something that you can officially have. But um, I think it does fall under anxiety. And it, it it's more like a set of symptoms. Yeah, it's a set of like beliefs and thoughts that you have that say like, oh, I'm really worried that people are going to find out that I'm not actually as qualified as I look or every every success I have is by accident, or I don't really deserve this. Um, the way I define it is when how you see yourself and how you're perceived by the world doesn't match up. And that would cause someone to say like, hey, I know this to be true about myself, but nobody else apparently does. I'm just waiting for the moment when that's going to connect. And I hope it's in a good way. But um, I think can we can we try to bring it into a a person like we'll yeah so imposter syndrome looks and sounds like your friend who is really successful and appears to have you know all the major boxes checked and they're doing well and um, internally they're constantly worried about oh my gosh, I got this job by accident, so I'm going to be fired. Every time someone says, hey, can we meet? The person is like, oh my gosh, this is it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when they may be in their love life, if the person that they're dating, they're like, oh my gosh, I don't deserve this. This person is out of my league. They're going to find out any minute now. Uh, and then when they don't text back for a minute, they're like 
see, this is, I knew this was going to happen. Like now they found out that I'm not as charming as they thought. Like when they get to know the real me, they're not going to like it. Um, and this is like an exaggeration. Like hopefully somebody doesn't have this in every part of their lives, but those would be examples of um, imposter syndrome where on the outside people are like, what are you talking about? Like, you're, you're fine. You're great. We love you. You're fantastic. Your job is great. You're going to be promoted. Um, and internally they're like, yeah, I know. But once they find out, when they see the real me, I'm going to be out of here. Um, and it begs the question, like, isn't this the real you? Like, what do you, what do you think people are going to find out? Like, I think I know you pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. But it's that idea that the person, um, they know how hard they are struggling. Um, so when they do deliver, people are like, wow, this is great. Thank you so much. But the person is like, yeah, this doesn't count because I stayed up to the last minute finishing it or I just got lucky or you know, mm. just, I, I forced my way into like having this done. I'm not, I'm not really this smart. I just happened to get all this information and put it out there. And mm -hmm. Like, isn't that, isn't that what everybody does? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you did the work, you did the work. So people have a hard time internalizing that success, even though they have the success all around them. What's the danger of that to a person besides, uh... unfulfillment and unhappiness? <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much it. So if you're okay with that, then it's not that big of a deal to you. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm getting used to it. No, uh, I think the other, aside from that, the other risk is that if we really don't think we're deserving, then we can really push people away or we can self-sabotage or we can not go for a promotion. Or if we get the promotion, we kind of maybe subconsciously screw it up because, oh, well, I knew this was going to happen anyway. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it can really have an impact on your life. But I think the main effect is that it just keeps you constantly anxious and constantly unhappy and trying to prove yourself. Right. I think we all know that per if it's not us, we know that person who is like constantly self-sabotaging. Yeah, I think self-sabotaging is is a big one. It definitely comes up a lot in conversations and somehow in um what's the word in connection with perfectionism yeah it's like they're kind of like layered self-sabotaging and perfectionism um and procrastination are kind of like layered one on top of the other and uh it's a it's a very dangerous cocktail besides yeah. the fact that it's anxiety inducing um and depression inducing mm -hmm. it actually is in fact it can be in fact detrimental to development Yeah. Like when a person doesn't give themselves a credit um, for what they achieve and whatever, then they're less likely to go for it the next time. I mean, if you think about it, you're over time, your income will be much lower because you're not going to go for certain promotions or you're not going to negotiate or you're just going to kind of you don't want to rock the boat because if I make too much noise, then people will see I don't want them to pay attention to me. Um, whereas people who don't have that, like the two people that I know who don't have it, will be, <laughs> I'm married to one of them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, won't, will feel much more confident. You have to outsource that. And then, right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it can definitely over time, certainly impact you. And I think it's a specific experience. Everybody, you know, they say 70% of people self-identify they're like oh yeah that's me like it's very common um mm -hmm. but i think it affects immigrants and children of immigrants in a specific way because while the rest of us are worried about these goals and like i went like these are all the people i went to school with and i have generational wealth and like mm -hmm. i know the culture and the language and i know the like boys club like my dad went here and now i'm going here like people have that pressure But the added pressure for people who um, don't have that history here, um, it's like we don't have that foundation to work from. So now we're like, oh, my God, I'm really just making this up. Like I am getting my crash course in America. I just learned all of this. So when I'm re when I'm uh, rewarded for it, I feel like, oh, I didn't really super earn this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> definitely. And definitely that part about like asking for promotion or being more confident and assertive in the workplace, um, I think. I see it in myself and in my friends and it definitely hinders careers and career and uh, um, freedom in a way. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's such a sad conundrum because that's what we come here for. Mm-hmm. Most people who come to the States come here to achieve. Right. That's kind of the promise of this and, whole enterprise. <laughs> and the people who have to, you know, start from scratch, essentially, are actually more skilled and more prepared and more qualified to do a lot of the stuff rather than people who, um, you know, have the benefit of generations before them doing the same thing. And so it is a sad conundrum because people are more qualified for it, but feel less so. Well, I think it's not only a feeling. Well, it is on one side, it is a feeling, but on, on the other side, it is also what you're, and, and we're going back to like your identity and your inner world and what the world puts on you because mm-hmm. people have told me, my friends have told me, don't put your Russian name. And I still go in this podcast I have as Sasha Kapustina, uh, but I have my married name and my married name sounds very American. Mm-hmm. But I don't go by that name. And but my friends have told me, like, hey, put your American name on your resume. And I'd be like, Well, yeah. but people when they start reading the resume, they will still see I'm like half of my life was there. It's not like I can hide it, really. <laughs> yeah, but then but then they'll think, like, wow, this cool American person is so like well traveled. I wonder how <laughs> she ended up over there. The thing is that they <laughs> If they read it, they're going to know. But if that name wasn't on there, it's less likely they would read it in the first place. Sorry. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. that is right there. Such, such, um, I don't know. That's not a feeling. That's not a feeling that no, I internally have. That's like a reality, right? Yeah. But it's a frustrating thing. Like, I don't want to have to reject my name because somebody's rejecting a potentiality of me not being qualified enough that to the point of, oh, it's not worth looking at her resume. Yep. What do we do with that? <laughs> Second episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that one of the things that we do as, and I mean, certainly for myself, I'm feeling that, um, I think that forces you into entrepreneurial position. Because like, if they're not going to give job to me, all right, then I'm going to make jobs for them. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, well, I can relate to that. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, you were born and raised here. You still mm-hmm. have a weird name. Did you oh, have yeah. that experience? Um, yeah, that's why I didn't change my name when I got married, because I was like, I finally got people under pronouncing this correctly. Like, I'm not changing it now. Sarah right? Stanatai. Oh, my gosh. I've bought, I I earned people saying my name correctly, so I'm just going to keep it. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't presume to say that, you know, my family was very, very academic and I'm very comfortable in that culture. And um, I did, you know, I do well when I, I got hired for things. And, but it was because whether my name was weird or not, it was because I was like playing into that culture and having the salads with the lunch, like in the lunchroom with the people and like, you know, you have to play into like white woman culture very much to like get ahead. Um, and I mm. was able to do that luckily. So I'm not going to presume that like, you know, I went to private school. Like I'm, I did not have that hardship. Huh? So you never second guessed your name. Uh, well, not that you had a choice really. I mean, but you could have. Oh no, I did have that experience when I was younger where I really wanted to change my name. I think everybody had that. No. Oh my God. Did everybody not have that? <laughs> um, yeah. everybody has different reasons I think I, I wanted to change my first name because it's a boy's name um, oh I love that name yeah but in Russia like every other boy is Sasha and it's Alexander or Alexandra so Sasha is both but um, it was a, it was an identity crisis at 12 yeah <laughs> I mean, I think I had that identity crisis for a lot of reasons, um, and I really didn't like my name for a long time. But um, I think as I became more confident in all the other parts of who I am, your name represents that. And so I was like, no, you can learn how to pronounce it. You can learn how to spell it. I'm going to correct you. Uh, But for a long time, I didn't. You know, uh, who was my inspiration in that? Who's that? Zach Galifianakis. I was like, if people can learn to say Galifianakis, they can, they can work on couples. Yeah, I wonder if we're even saying it correctly. 
I, I wonder. I'm right? not sure. <laughs> I probably was like, okay, this is easy enough. We'll just go with that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think we got a lot covered. Is there anything else you'd like to you'd like to add? I didn't really talk about this much, but uh, I am really excited. This is the first time I'm doing my Afghan American women's group, um, which is going to be a therapy group that's starting in November. Um, and I've done group and I've, like I've said, I've helped all my clients. Most of my clients are first or second gens and many Afghans. And now this is the first time I'm doing a group that's just for us. And so I'm very excited about it. Um, and the people I've been speaking to and who've already committed, um, we're all just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're doing this. This is a real thing. And people are kind of nervous and they're like, wait, what kind of group is this? Uh, and I've been saying, I'm like, this isn't your mom's like women's group through the mosque. Like this is actually like, we're all cool. I don't know. I have tattoos. It's fine. Like, we'll we'll be great. Um, so I'm really, really excited about that. It's starting in November, but I got such a big response. Um, I know I'm going to keep continue doing it um, into the new year too. So if folks do want to learn more about it, they can um, go to prospecttherapy.com or they can follow me on Instagram at prospecttherapy and make sure they get on our mailing list so that they can um, hear about the next time we're offering that group. Awesome. Definitely. And I'll put all the links in the show notes for people to easily find you. Thank you so much. It was really fun. It was fun. Thanks for your time, Sasha. You ask really good questions. Thank you. <laughs> that's it for today I hope you enjoyed it I think there was some good stuff in there call our Google Voice at 213-973-3813 and tell us what you think what do you think about the show what do you think about life what do you think about dealing with imposter syndrome a new lockdown. What's going on? Give us a call. Find Prospect Therapy and Sarah's team at www.prospecttherapy.com or on Instagram at Prospect Therapy. They always post good stuff and you'll get to see how cool they are. <laughs> and share the show with a friend. Do you know someone who's totally underestimating themselves? Or someone who's sabotaging themselves by procrastinating and killing themselves with their own perfectionism? Send them the link to the show. Let them know you're thinking about them. I mean, you don't have to tell them you think that they're sabotaging themselves. Just let them know you think the world of them. We all need a hug these days, and, and hugs can be dangerous, which is messed up, but that's that. And text messages are not, and neither are phone calls. So call a friend. Tell them I said hello. Tell them I said they're doing great. Okay? And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Please stay safe. Love you all. Peace. My country, you can keep.